As a church, we have been reading through the book of Exodus this autumn, and we've come now to Exodus chapter 24 in our Bible readings, and that is our scripture reading for today. You can find it on page 82 in the Pew Bibles. Exodus 24. We'll remember that uh, a couple of chapters ago and a couple of weeks ago, we had the, the... the covenant being announced to the people and the Ten Commandments. And then in the meantime, there's been lots of smaller laws and instructions that have been given. And now it comes the day to enter into the covenant. So Exodus chapter 24, and we'll begin at verse 1. Let's hear God speaking to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commands I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire, on top of the mountain. 
Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this is God's word. Well, as we come to God's Word now, I wonder if you turn back to Exodus chapter 24, which you can find on page 82 of your Pew Bibles. And let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our Father God, we thank you for your grace, this grace that's unmeasured, that's boundless and free. Thank you that we love to sing of it. Thank you that we love to sing of it because it is so good as we experience your favor that's undeserved. And Father, as we consider the next step in our journey through life, as we consider the week ahead, we pray for another sense of your grace this morning as we come to your word. We pray that we'll have a deeper understanding of the richness of your grace as we read the scriptures this morning. Help us to attend to your word, help us to concentrate, help me to speak clearly and for your spirit to be working in all of our hearts. We pray for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. One of the most common phrases that you'll hear around our church, most churches these days, is relationship with God. People will say, how's your relationship with God going? Or, I hope we do anyway. Uh, We'll say, are you in a relationship with God? You might say, my relationship with God really isn't going very well at the moment. Or we might say, I'm really wanting to grow in my relationship with God. Well, it's a really common phrase, but I want to make a fairly bold claim this morning, and I'm open to correction. I realize I'm putting myself out there here as I say this. I don't think the Bible ever uses the phrase relationship with God. Now, I know we've got a number of retired ministers who will be eagerly racking through their kind of sermons to think um, when, they, when they found that in the Bible. And anyone else, if you, if you want to come and show me where, where I've missed that, I'd be delighted. But I don't think the Bible ever says exactly that, that phrase, relationship with God. But what it does talk about a lot, and really the closest thing to, that, to the way we use that phrase, is the theme of our scripture reading today and the theme of this sermon. And that is the word covenant. Now, what is a covenant? Well, everything has got some sort of relationship to God. You cannot exist and not have a relationship with God. Everything relates to God as a creature relates to its creator. Everything that exists, exists because of God. It has its existence from God. Everything that is good has its goodness from God, because God is the one who is the source of all existence, the source of all goodness. And as human beings, we all relate to God like that. We're all creatures. And God is our creator. The scriptures say that in him, we live and move and have our being. Okay, so everyone, everything has got some sort of relationship to God. But as human beings, we're able to understand things, think about things, and we're able to make choices. And that means that as human beings, we're actually able to have a special kind of relationship with God that goes beyond simply being creatures. We can have a covenant relationship with God. 
in a covenant relationship, God comes to us as thinking beings and makes promises to us and calls us to trust in them and then to live in light of them, to respond and make decisions. He calls us for a response as his covenant partners. A covenant relationship is a binding relationship in which God makes promises and calls us to respond. He sets the terms. A covenant relationship with God is not something we define. It's not a vague thing. It's not something that we do on our terms. And it's something that the Bible has got a lot to say about in both the Old and the New Testament. And one of the illustrations that the Bible uses over and over again to talk about our covenant relationship with God is the idea of a marriage. In a marriage, the the two people, the man and the woman, come together and they make binding promises to each other and they expect each other to live in light of those promises and they enter into this committed relationship together. And actually, a a wedding and a marriage is actually quite a good way to describe what we've seen about how God relates to his people in Exodus. Chapters 1 to 18, we saw a kind of a courtship going on as the Lord rescues his people from the abusive relationship that they were in under Pharaoh. And we, we saw how God carries them on eagle's wings and brings them to himself. And they arrived at Mount Sinai at chapter 19, And there we saw a couple of weeks ago, God makes a proposal to the people of Israel. He invites them to enter into this covenant relationship with him. And the people say yes, and so they get engaged. And then the next few chapters, Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, you can think of that as kind of like the marriage prep uh, phase of the relationship. Um, Over those chapters, God explains to Moses what this covenant relationship is really going to look like in detail. And at the start of our passage this morning, Moses comes down the mountain and he tells the people all of this and they respond, verse 3, everything the Lord has said, we will do. And so the wedding is on. And the rest of Exodus 24 is a bit like the wedding service. There's this special covenant ceremony where the people enter into this binding covenant relationship with God. And you may be thinking, that's all very interesting, but what has this covenant ceremony here in Exodus 24 got to do with our covenant relationship with God? Well, as I say, Frank will be discussing that uh, this evening. But very briefly, um, it's worth pointing out that when the book of Hebrews wants to explain what our covenant relationship to God looks like through Jesus the author of Hebrews actually quotes from Exodus 24 to make some really fundamental points. As we see the people of Israel this morning entering into this covenant relationship with God, we're not just seeing a kind of a historical event that we've moved on from. We're actually seeing fundamental principles about what it means for all of us to be in a covenant relationship with God. Not one that we make up on our own terms, but the one that God has set out for us and invited us into. There are three fundamental principles in this chapter, and they take place at three different levels on the mountain. So we'll follow that through. So here's the first one. The blood of the covenant binds us to God. So it's the morning of the wedding, and Moses is the kind of like the officiant, if you like, 
Uh, he gets up early, and, but he doesn't go and get an ulster fry, as many people might do on the morning of a, of a wedding. Instead, he makes an altar at the foot of the mountain, and he sets around it 12 pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, and then uh, he gets the young men of Israel, because there's no priests at this point, to offer sacrifices to the Lord, uh, as he was instructed to do at the end of Exodus 20. And he takes the blood of the sacrifices, and half of the blood of those sacrifices, he splashes on the altar. And then the other half, and then, the peop- then he reads the, the book of the covenant, all these laws and instructions that God has given. And the people respond, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey, verse 7. And then Moses takes the other half of the blood and he literally sprinkles them with it. Maybe not all the people, maybe representatives of the people, but he literally splashes them with the blood of these sacrifices. Well, in some ways, this looks like a normal wedding service, doesn't it? You've got the two parties. You've got the altar, representing God, and then you've got the 12 tribes of Israel. And both parties make promises. Um, As Moses reads the Book of the Covenant, that's God making his promises to the people. And then the people make their promises. They respond, everything the Lord has said, we will do. We will obey. They say, I do. But in other ways, this is very different to a normal wedding ceremony, isn't it? Particularly because the bride and the groom both end up getting covered in blood. Look, Moses says, verse 8, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In a normal marriage, the vows are enough to bind the couple together. But in this relationship, this covenant relationship, it is the blood of the covenant that binds us to God. And that hasn't changed. At the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus took a cup and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of the covenant that binds us to God is the blood of Christ, poured out in his death on the cross for the forgiveness of all our sins. I want to tell you about a debate that took place in Cambridge in the kind of 1920s, 1930s. The Cambridge uh, University Christian Union, KICU is the acronym, um, had split away from the national group of student unions, and that was called the Student Christian Movement at the time, or the SCM. And obviously there was a desire for there to be a, a, a reuniting. And so a meeting took place between Daniel Dick and Norman Grubb, who were the president and the secretary of the KICU, the Cambridge uh, Christian Union, and Rollo Perry, who was the secretary of the Student Christian Movement, the national group. And later, Norman Grubb uh, wrote this. After an hour's talk, I asked Rollo point blank, does the SCM put the atoning blood of Christ central? He hesitated and then said, well, we acknowledge it, but not necessarily central. Dan Dick and I then said that this settled the matter for us in the KICU, 
We could never join something that did not maintain the atoning blood of Christ as its center. And we parted company. Well, why am I telling you about a debate that took place in 1920s Cambridge between people called Rollo and Norman? Well, it may not feel directly relevant, but sometimes it's helpful to look at these debates that happened in the past because they kind of take us out of our situation and we kind of think, well, what would we have done in that situation? And I wonder, what would you have done in that situation if you were those guys from Kick You? Would you have ended the meeting there when the other guy said, we, we, we think the atoning blood of Jesus Christ is important, but it's not central. Do you think that was a narrow decision to walk out from that meeting, to avoid being united with those people? Would you have been tempted to maybe say, we, we, we do acknowledge the atoning blood of Christ, but it's not necessarily central? I guess many of us will associate too much focus on the blood of Christ with fundamentalism, a sort of a narrow approach to Christianity. I was interested to see this week that there's a BBC documentary on the life of Ian Paisley called Power in the Blood. And maybe when we sing words like, Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heirs of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Maybe you cringe a little, do you? Are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the blood? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Well, I hope you don't cringe at those words. Because if you give up the blood, you give up the covenant. It is the blood of the covenant that binds us to God. And if you give up the covenant, then you go for a relationship with God that's entirely on your own terms, that's entirely based on your merits. The blood of the covenant was central for Moses. It's all over this passage. It's all over the people. The blood of the covenant was central for Jesus. It's all over the Last Supper. And it's central for us because the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ, is all over us. Brothers and sisters, we can be fortunate that we don't have to go home from church today and put our clothes in the tumble dryer. But praise the Lord that we are covered in the blood of Christ. The blood of the covenant binds us to God. We need it because we need our sins forgiven. So don't move on from the blood. Instead, put your confidence in this blood. Our confidence in our relationship with God is not in our works. It's not in our ability to keep our promises. It's not even in our good intentions and our good feelings. I'm sure we know many couples who have made vows and seem to have the best intentions and even the deepest feelings for one another. And we all know how often and how quickly those vows are very sadly broken. And it's true, isn't it, that if our relationship with God was founded on our good intentions or our good feelings or our ability to keep our promises, then we would be on very shaky foundations. But praise God, what binds us to God in this covenant relationship is not ultimately our vows, but the blood of Christ.
The buck stops here. When we fall, Christ pays. When we sin, Christ redeems. The blood of the Christ is the death that brings forgiveness for all our failures to keep God's covenant. So drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the blood of the covenant binds us to God. But secondly, the blood of the covenant also brings intimacy with God. Let's pick up the story in verse 9. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. So it's really important to see the link here. The elders seal the covenant, and then they go up to the next part of the mountain to see God. And there they they eat with God, and that's a great symbol of intimacy in the Bible. Whenever people sit down to, to eat with each other, that's a recognition that there's friendship and fellowship. And so heaven is pictured as a banquet. We're told in Revelation that it's going to be the marriage feast of the Lamb. But the emphasis here in these verses is is on the elders seeing God. There's actually two different words for seeing that get used here. I think the author is trying to capture something of the richness of this vision. And we get this very short but very vivid description of what they saw up on the mountainside that day. You can almost hear, can't you, the astonishment in the words. They saw God and ate and drank. So if A few moments ago, we had the kind of the I do moment. This is kind of like the kiss. What we're seeing here is the intimacy with God that comes through the covenant. A married couple should have intimacy with each other that they don't have with anybody else. And so any stranger who walks up and sort of tries to join in a joke that the married couple have is likely to make a fool of themselves, aren't they? And this defined, special, covenant relationship that God invites us into works in just that same way. No one trying to have a relationship with God outside of this covenant can ever hope to have this intimacy. Think of the contrast. Two weeks ago, we saw at at the foot of Mount Sinai that nobody was allowed to touch the mountain lest they died. The people were terrified and stayed at a distance. Even Moses trembled with fear. And with good reason, because God threatened to break out against them. But now here are these same people, halfway up the mountain, eating and drinking with God. And God did not raise his hand against these leaders of Israel. Instead of the thick darkness around Mount Sinai that we saw two weeks ago, Now there is this sapphire pavement as clear as the sky itself. What has made the difference? The covenant. Specifically, the blood of the covenant. We should see these elders of Israel walking up the mountain 
with their clothes splattered with blood. It's the blood of the covenant that brings intimacy with God. I wonder, can you imagine how this would have impacted the Lord's people? As they went on from Sinai and traveled through the desert, they would know that this covenant had a goal. The goal was intimacy with God. This is what the covenant is driving towards. And praise God, they would have been able to see that it wasn't based on their performance, that it was a gift of God. Just like us, they would have known that we come by the blood. I've encouraged you this morning to keep the blood of Christ central. But at the same time, we also want to allow the blood to do what it's aiming at, which is to lead us to God. Uh, So let's do that. Let's come to God by the blood. Let the blood carry you towards intimacy with God. Follow the blood. I wonder, do you wish that you could have maybe been there that day, up on the mountainside, eating and drinking with God and seeing his glory? It must have been a remarkable thing, don't you think? Well, we don't get any details here of what God looked like. There is this mention of feet, which maybe suggests that God is representing himself in a kind of human form in this vision. But the emphasis is really on what's beneath his feet. Do you see it there in verse 10? Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. Uh, One commentator suggests that it's as though what we admire above our heads, the blue skies, well, that is below the glory of God's feet. Even the most beautiful, glorious blue sky is only like pavement in the courts of heaven. And that pavement, that word we've got translated pavement there, is literally something made of bricks. That's interesting, isn't it? Because when the Israelites were in Egypt, their God, essentially, was Pharaoh. He had all the power over them, and he made them work to build clay bricks for himself, to build his cities. But now that the Israelites are freed from slavery, they get to see their true God. And what does he show them as he shows them his glory? He shows them this vision of a a pavement made of bricks that far outstrips any clay bricks Pharaoh could produce. The Lord shows them sapphire bricks. Pharaoh's glory came by enslaving people to make them build for him cities of bricks. But our God's glory is already firmly established. He doesn't need anyone to make him bricks. God's glory is that he shares his glory. He opens up the gates of heaven to these elders of Israel and allows them to see the beauty of his dwelling place. Well, like the people of Israel, we don't live up here on the mountain. We spend our lives in the wilderness of this world. And it can often feel like a dry and weary land where there is no water. But I hope that this is a refreshing vision for you this morning as you live your life in the covenant. Because if we're trusting in Christ, then this is our destiny. Over and over again, the apostles promise that we, as Christians, 
will see God. In Revelation 22, we get a vision of the holy city and we're told that God's servants will see his face. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light. The Apostle Paul tells us that now we see in a glass darkly, but then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. We can't go into this today, but seeing God seems to be something of having an intimate relationship with God, an intimate knowledge of God, knowing our Creator directly, as though face to face, fully known. That is our destiny. And that's what we catch just a little glimpse of as these elders of Israel ascend up the mountain and have a vision of God's glory above the bright blue sky. Brothers and sisters, we are covenant people, and so we have a covenant hope. And this is it. Intimacy with God. We will see God, and we will eat and drink. But there's another level to the mountain. This doesn't take place at the top of the mountain, but the middle of the mountain. And so there's one more level at the mountain that we just need to finish with this morning. Uh, After this, God invites Moses to come up to the very top of the mountain. And so Moses presses on to the peak with only Joshua accompanying him for a short while. And we're told that Moses alone enters the cloud on the top of the mountain. And he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's going to receive the two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments on them. uh, God's permanent instruction for the people. And when he returns, his face is going to be glowing because he has been in the presence of the Lord. And as you see Moses kind of ascending up the mountain all by himself, you start to realize Actually, Moses has got a very unique place in this whole story. He's actually the only person in this chapter who doesn't have his clothes covered in blood. Now, that's not because Moses is sinless. He's a normal human being, just like all of us. But his role is to prefigure, to foreshadow the role of the mediator of this covenant. The blood of the covenant has only one mediator. But it's not Moses. Centuries later, four men again ascended up a mountain. And there, one of them was transfigured before them. His face started to shine. His clothes were radiant, pure white. Moses and Elijah appeared and started talking to him. The men saw his glory, we're told. And they entered a cloud and a voice spoke to them and said, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found out that Jesus was alone. This is God's permanent instruction. The blood of the covenant has only one mediator. And his name is Jesus. 
He is the mediator who has poured out his blood to bring forgiveness of sins. He has poured out his blood for the forgiveness of sins so that we can draw near to God with our consciences cleansed and so that we can be sure of a guaranteed inheritance. We, you, me, if we're trusting in the blood of Christ, we will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever. We are covenant people with a covenant hope through a unique mediator, the eternal Son of God. And so through him and with him be praise and authority to the Father with the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we live not on the mountain, but in the wilderness. We live our days fighting against sin and temptation, fighting against suffering and evil, trying to make our way in this world. But our Father, we thank you that you've shown us this morning that this is not without purpose. That in fact we are your covenant people bound to you by the blood of Christ, your only Son, and destined for glory. So Lord, lead us on. Lead us on home, we pray. And help us to live as your covenant people in this hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, as we continue in your presence, we thank you for this passage which Sam has explained to us this morning and brought to us. We thank you for how we have heard of Israel's acceptance of your covenant, which was then ratified in several ceremonial activities including the formal writing and reading of the covenant, the splattering of the blood, a covenant meal and the appearing of the glory of the Lord on the mountain. Our Father, we thank you for the Exodus. We thank you that this book raises so many questions and people from the beginning of time until now has searched this book and has found not only the questions with regard to the meaning of a relationship with you, how that relationship can be established, what that relationship will look like, and how we can stick within that relationship. The book of Exodus provides us with those answers, revealing not only what was required of them in those days, but of us now, with regard to a relationship with you, but also what you have graciously done to make that relationship possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, as you intercede for us, it is our privilege to intercede for others just now. And we particularly pray for the mad weekend which has been taking place in Coleraine, 
We pray for our own young people and Mark and the leaders who have enjoyed their time there from Friday, for how your word has been explained through many speakers and the seminars dealing with life-changing issues for our young people, questions raised, and hopefully answers found in your word. So we thank you for this opportunity through the youth initiative of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland for these young people to gather. May they have been provoked. May they have been deepened in their faith. Maybe for some, they have found faith in Christ. We pray that you will return them safely to their homes and churches this afternoon. Lord, as a church, we are blessed to have relationships with others overseas. We thank you for our relationship in Rwanda with Dr. Benini and the members of Gilgal Church. We thank you for our relationship with uh, Golgotha Baptist Church and Pastor Cornell and the congregation in Moldova. We pray for James and Heather, Pedro and Amada in Porto and Portugal and the members of that fledgling church. And we remember Helen in Japan. We commend them and commit them to your grace and to your mercy and to your protection. And our Father, we pray for our church, the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. Firstly, we pray for our congregation, Bloomfield. We say we are based on the Bible. We are passionate about people. And we are centered in Christ. And very often that's hard to see in our lives because it do, these things don't seem to manifest themselves very much. Forgive us, we pray. Help us to work them out and for you to work through us in our daily witness. We pray for our moderator, Dr. McMullen, and his wife, Barbara. We thank you for their ministry so far and their theme of building relationships. Keep them safe in travel. Bless their ministry. Bless the conveners of all the councils within the Presbyterian Church in Ireland, and we particularly pray for Frank as the convener of the mission in Ireland. We pray for our college. We think of the students who go there to be taught and shaped for ministry. We pray for the professors and the support staff, and the students especially. And we think of Drew, and we think of Philip in his second year of study. We pray also, Father, for our own members, Anita, working in SU. We pray for Brian and Nightlight, and we pray for Eddie and Balico Martin. And our Father, we commit this week to you in all its activities and all that will take place unknown to us as you go before us. We pray for our organizations, young and old, with committed leadership and a vision to serve Christ. Many hundreds of people will come through these doors this week, some for our own activities, some for non-church activities. But we pray that whoever enters these doors might experience the love of Christ. We pray especially for our Kirk session meeting this Tuesday and the meeting of the Congregational Committee. We thank you for your guidance from 2012 until now with regard to a building project. 
And we just ask, Lord, that you will reveal yourself on Tuesday evening. We thank you for the contractors who have taken the time to express their interest in building a place conducive for worship and witness. And we pray that the decisions taken at that meeting and the week after will be sealed by your approval. And so, our Father, as we enter this church, we look to the pulpit and we see a tapestry of the burning bush, a blazing fire in the middle of a bush, engulfed in flames, but not consumed. And I believe, Lord, this may show us that you do not wish to consume those who you have called and set aside. You don't want a blaze You want them to ablaze for your purposes and not to be consumed. And this bush reminds us of God's glory. Fire is symbolic of your glory, a source of your illumination, an indication of your power, a source of cleansing, a source of warmth and comfort in cold and dark places. It's symbolic of your wrath against uncleanliness. So we thank you that you're able to cleanse us without destroying us. And our Father, may we leave this place taking the words of verse 3 from chapter 24 for ourselves this week. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Amen.